Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello everyone and welcome back to Holly History. We discuss what you want to hear. This is Nick here and unlike previous times, I'm not coming to you from the Holly Central School District. I am coming to you today from my office at home. Um, sitting sitting in here while the, the, the closings continue and we hope you tuned into our podcast on the current coronavirus and the school closures and all sorts of good stuff with Mr. Crispin that I did. And today, I wanted to get back to doing the shorts that we had promised you. Uh, the school year gets a little busy, but since we have some time now and I'm, I'm currently doing things through Schoology with students, I'm loving to see a lot of students posting and discussion boards and doing their work. It's awesome to see that. But now that I have a little bit of time, too, as I'm sitting here in my office every day, uh, I want to get these shorts out to you. I want to make sure that we're delivering you history. So the last one we did, we left off, was with... Um, the westward expansion period and kind of the, the Native American story along with a lot of other pieces there. So today we want to get into the industrial period and I'm actually marching through this kind of like my eighth grade curriculum. So we're going to take you through to a two-part series on the industrial period. In this first part we're going to be discussing um, more of the top half of uh, society and the economy and in the second half of the industrial uh, podcast short, we're going to talk more about the, the the more middle to bottom half of society. There's two theories behind history, you know, a top down look and a bottom up look. And I think there's value in looking at both. So I wanted to make sure that we, we did that with this time period. And we'll do that many more times throughout these shorts as well. So similar to Westward Expansion, there's this big narrative of uh, the rising from the ashes after the Civil War into the eventual superpower the United States is going to be. This is where the foundations are kind of laid. This movement is already a generation old when it comes to the Industrial Revolution, and we can thank the British kind of for that. They're the ones that get the ball rolling with a lot of this stuff. And the United States, though, has the the land, the resources, the manpower, and all of the things to eventually overtake the British Empire in the production of goods um, as the world's economic center. We'll see that kind of happen after World War I. So the United States is, is sitting right there kind of waiting in the wings to... Uh, to move up the ladder, so to speak, the food chain on the the world stage. By the mid-1800s, mass production techniques are becoming very commonly used throughout the world, and we begin to see the modern factory system kind of take root, especially in the United States. And mass production is an important concept for the Reader's Exam and really understanding this time period. Um, Basically, what mass production is is just like what it sounds. It's the creation of products quickly and cheaply, which you have to understand in economic sense what that does for the consumer, for the average folk out in the street purchasing the product, is it brings down the cost, which makes consumers very happy. Now we'll get into what this can do to workers and stuff like that in the second uh, episode of the industrial period. But at the heart of all of this industrial growth, and that's the the the, the first part of this industry series focused on is the growth. Um, 
are new technologies that allow for this mass mass production. And that's going to be the driving force. There'll be tons of new methods and technologies for making new products, better products. Some of the guys that fuel things like this, you can go check out people like Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison, some of their inventions. Um, Everything from powering cities electricity to light bulbs, you name it, even moving pictures become a technology at this time. Even, you know, something so simple as a modern sewing machine making standard sizes that we all use today. And the only thing, though, is this new technology is very expensive. And it's so expensive that you begin to see the formation and the need for capital investment investors in a company. No longer can one person finance or create these new giant businesses. And this leads to the rise in creation of corporations. Now, joint companies have been always been around, but you're going to start seeing them increase a lot more. And it's kind of like this perfect storm with all this technology and mass production things coming together in this time period. These companies will have shareholders or um, people who buy stock in the company in order to gain a profit back. It's not overly new, but again, this is going to be kind of fueling that growth along. And the United States is ripe for this. Similar to Britain, you have a policy of capitalism and a free market economy that allows for the government to be pretty hands-off, allow this stuff to happen. Um, The Constitution does not delegate much power when it's written in in the 18th century to you know, for the government to, to step in here and, and, you know, create a fair playing field like we have today with some of our measures. And this idea is kind of known as laissez-faire economics, which uh, is a French term that translates to, you know, let it lie, leave it alone economics. Uh, the idea that if left alone, businesses will create wealth and that will do really good for the economy. I'm obviously paraphrasing because these are short episodes. These are not full episodes. One of the guys behind this is a, is, uh, a banker named J.P. Morgan who will understand that he can have great control over the economy and not be quite particularly rich himself. And he'll wield so much power that uh, the government eventually will open a line of credit with him in the 1890s during a, their own financial crisis. And I want this kind of brings us to the idea of the modern tycoon, the captain of industry, or the term I think you hear a lot more, robber baron. Um, J.P. Morgan is the one that I mentioned because he sees finance as the future of the economy and he's kind of right on that. Even though he particularly may not have the most money of anybody in the United States, he can snap his fingers and bring together investments who trust his word in the realm of finance, which makes him particularly powerful. And he'll wield that power throughout much of his life. And uh, But this idea of a robber baron, now the term robber baron we get from... Um, Germany, actually, in much earlier times, and barons who controlled land would rob from there or steal from their their subjects and or their retainers, and get rich dishonestly, basically. So this term was applied to some of the wealthy people in the late 19th century. That's late 1800s, early 1900s, and that's how we get the name robber baron. It's not supposed to be a good term. It's somebody who gets wealthy using dishonest tactics. So J.P. Morgan we've mentioned, but there's going to be a lot of other ones um, and that they've gotten rich and they maintain their power through corruption. Other people admire them, you know, refer to them as captains of industry. The truth is these these are complex people um, that we're going to talk about and they deserve the criticism and they deserve some credit. You know, history is not always black and white. Um, there are shades of gray with people and humans, you know, they're they're imperfect creatures and we have to look at our historical figures that way. So back to the the unit here in this era of mass production, a few products in particular fuel growth. One of the biggest ones is steel. We can uh, also give courtesy that to another Brit, Henry Bessemer. 
Uh, basically, the Bessemer process allows for steel to be produced in very large quantities, a fast rate, and a good price. Basically, it's mass production applied to steel. Steel wasn't a new product, but the mass production of it was was very, very new. Um, there were small items made out of steel before. They're very strong and great items, usually like silverware, things like that. But you're going to see that in the industrial period. A lot of times, these things aren't new, but when they're mass produced, that changes the game. So a lot of the industrial period is applying mass production techniques to different areas of the economy. Um, and steel will become the backbone of America, quite literally building cities, bridges, rails, all sorts of things allowing for the growth of, of this. And one of the men behind this is Andrew Carnegie, who you may be familiar with. He's a very poor uh, Scottish immigrant who is in, uh, comes to the United States and by the end will become one of the richest men in the world. He creates the company Carnegie Steel, which becomes so successful Um Really, in large part, one of the reasons is because he's focused on controlling all levels of the production of steel. So Carnegie will own railroads, iron mines, uh, mills, the steel mills to eventually create the product. And he saves himself a ton of money in the production process. Instead of having to buy iron from somebody's mine, instead of having them to pay the shipping fee, he'll combine all this into one, which will make him wildly wealthy. And he is seen as one of the robber baron types as well. He's probably the most sympathetic because eventually he will sell Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan, which will become U.S. Steel, um, and donate a lot of his fortune before he dies to charity. So he's, a lot of people see Carnegie as kind of going through a change of heart in his life. We can debate that later, but he's definitely probably the most sympathetic of the characters. Um, Other robber barons who are along with Morgan, and the other one I want to talk about, probably has a rough reputation like Morgan does, is John D. Rockefeller. Uh, the head giant of the massive Standard Oil Company, or the Standard Oil Trust. He was very poor as well. Now, Morgan was born very wealthy, who went from rich to richer, but Carnegie and Rockefeller went from that rags-to-riches story, which will fuel this idea of people coming to America to try to achieve that. Um, His company thrived not so much uh, on the drilling of oil and, and taking of that. His company thrived on controlling the refining of oil. He understood that, look, drilling for oil is a gambler's game. You hit wells, you know, they, they come on up and, and, you know, you lose a lot of oil in the process. And, and he didn't like that idea so much. He saw kind of that, okay, I can have a lot of influence if I control the refining of this product. Crude oil itself needs to be refined into other products, okay? So he understands that this can be a very, very powerful thing if he can manage to do it. And by the 1880s, he's controlling somewhere upwards of the 80s and 90% of the North American oil supply. Um, so Standard Oil earns the title of one of America's first monopolies, and it gets the name of you know the octopus. Now let's just talk about it really quick. A monopoly and a trust are is, is a business that, or usually a corporation that's become so huge they control an entire industry. They are the only one around. They eliminate their competition, and that's what Rockefeller was very, very good at doing. He would run people out of business, um, intimidate them, whatever it took. This guy was very, very good at running his 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 business. I just quickly want to come back to that term, the octopus. Uh, they got that nickname because they had their quote-unquote tentacles or their hands in so many different businesses from um, you know bank, the banking industry, the, the eventually the auto industry, things like that. And they will be depicted in many cartoons, political cartoons of the era, as an octopus. So, and when you think of an octopus and when you see it in the, the cartoons, it's, it's not exactly the most flattering image or the best image to be portrayed as. Now, in order to keep their power, guys like Rockefeller, Morgan, Carnegie, wealthier Americans, the, the captains of industry in the positive light, Robert Barons in the negative light, 
They want to make sure the government never interferes with their growing power and wealth. Some of the best cartoons of the era really demonstrate this. And my favorite is Joseph Kepler's The Bosses of the Senate. You need to go look at this cartoon. If I had to pick one cartoon to explain this whole um, podcast, it would be this one. And you see the cartoon, and there's the big truss in the back, and they're depicted as money bags. And they have the names of the individual trusts in them. And in the front of them are the senators. And they're so small. And Kepler does a great job of using size and scale to show what he thinks of this whole situation, the purpose of his, of his cartoon. Now, this demonstrates their, their, their power, the size and everything. And the senators appear to be looking back to the trust to make decisions, so on and so forth. But my favorite part of the whole cartoon is way up in the back. You can't really read it well, but it says um, that this is a senator of the monopolists for the monopolists by the monopolists. And that's a play on the Gettysburg Address, obviously. And it really drives home the point that the government is not representing the will of every American. It's playing favorites. It's picking winners and losers. And this will be the kind of the reputation of this time period for quite some time. Now, however, people just don't take this sitting down. We'll hear in the second half of the show, uh, an industry part two, and as well as the progressive episode, there's many movements that will emerge to counterbalance this power. And one of them is out west to kind of come back to the growth in the west episode, uh, known as the Grange. And the Grange will grow into the populist movement. Now, the Grange was formed to combat corrupt railroad companies that would price gouge or charge farmers outrageous prices to move their crops to market. Farmers really had no choice that, you know, the railroads are your your main source of transportation, freight. And the railroad owners knew this. So they began to form organizations, and it kind of grows into this movement um, known as the populist movement, the Grange, kind of coupled together. Populism is still a very commonly used term to describe politics today and politicians. Um, It evolves over time and changes as time goes along, but essentially populism is a political identity that pushes against the economic and political elites of a day and age of a society, and it appeals to the common person who feel their needs are ignored and you will see you know people get called populist all the time so that's kind of the bill they're going for something that represents the common person we'll see this struggle culminate or come to a head in 1896 between uh, in the presidential election between democrat william jennings bryan and republican william mckinley now william jennings bryan is an interesting character he's probably one of the most politically important americans that will never become president you know spoiler alert right um he's very influential will run for president again, he will serve as Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson. So he's he's a pretty, you know, powerful, important figure in our own history that many people don't know a lot about. Brian is basically though a populist running as a Democrat. He's promising to dismantle monopolies and trusts, which is, you know, radar alert, you know, Morgan, um, Carnegie and Rockefeller who will throw all of their support behind Republican William McKinley. And you're gonna see in the future, you know, this the Republican Party typically throughout all of its history is seen as more of the pro-business party quite sometimes. And this is where that kind of really takes root. Um, so they'll throw tons of money behind McKinley. There's no election laws at this time. You can donate whatever you want, how much you want. So they put all their weight behind McKinley and McKinley wins the election. And this shows the level of kind of corruption in the government and the government choosing between the winners and the losers in society. And there were anti-monopoly laws. There were antitrust laws. The Sherman Antitrust Act, something you should know, was passed in the early 1890s, but very few to almost no one was willing to enforce those laws. The, the elites understood, look, if I can get the right guy in power, I'm still protected no matter what the law says. And this era will earn 
a nickname known as the Gilded Age. Yes, it's known for extreme wealth, growth, power, the the introduction of American cities, you know, the the amazing, you know, levels of GDP, gross domestic product, all of the top half stuff that is just magnificent and and brilliant and America becomes a superpower, the start of it at least. But underneath that guild, that gold layer on the top, there's a large gap of wealth. And that's what we get into as a good segue into Industry Part 2 episode, where this is not the whole story. Now, there's tons of debate about robber barons in this time period and, and the good versus the bad. And I don't like to get into those debates. It's just, let's take a look at what we're dealing with here, right? Let's not debate if these guys are good or bad. Um, let's talk about more in depth you know, do you think the benefits outweigh the drawbacks? You know, that's a question I ask my students all the time. And it's so interesting to see them kind of reason through that. And it's a good way to look at the time period because some students say, absolutely, the benefits certainly outweigh the drawbacks. Other students look at this and say, no, no, they, they don't. There's too many uh, downsides to this time period. And the whole idea is I just want students, you guys to be thinking about that. So, all right, next episode, we will be bringing you the industry part two short kind of some of the responses to all this industrialization uh we'll follow that up with the progressive episode on progressives then sort of their response to to this and then eventually we reach imperialism and then we're marching towards the first world war and into the 20th century so thank you for listening to holly history